you can't throw a grenade at the proof. Welcome to Charlotte Mason Says. I'm John Chindell, here with my wife, Crystal. Join us as we read and discuss the home education series. All right, so we are discussing chapter 13. Faith and duty. Man lives by faith, Godward, and manward. This is another review. It is a review of Reverend H.C. Beeching's sermon series. He did an 11-part series with a preface on faith in 1892. And Charlotte Mason Poetry found these sermons and has transcribed them and published them on their website. Very nice. So it's very exciting. So someday maybe we'll go read those. You can also listen to them. Really? Because they they do audio podcast of their blog. Oh, nice. So you can read it or listen to it. Okay. Because they have a well-oiled machine over there. Before we start... Can you tell us a little bit about the overflow of it? Oh, yeah. So so the chapter seems to be broken down. Uh, much like last chapter, the, the last chapter of her review of Foyer's thing. Education from a uh, national standpoint. Thank you. Uh, Foyer's book, Education from a... Didn't from, have to look that up this time. I'm impressed. Much like she broke down that chapter into half and half her thoughts and a direct review, she seems to break this one down into her thoughts and then a direct review. I'll accept it's flipped. This time she does her thoughts first, which is seemingly a walkthrough of how you get, I guess, from square one to the review of his sermons. And then she just, she goes through and reviews three out of the 10 sermons directly. Mm -hmm. But she gives a whole bunch of preamble before getting to that review. And it's that preamble where I think there's most of the meat in this section because she goes into detail about quite a few things. I wonder if she actually sat under him or if she just found him. Read his sermons. I, I don't know. That would have been a good thing to look up. Let us didn't. know if you guys know because I didn't look that up. Yeah, that would be interesting. So looking at how it's broken down, we have her thoughts first. And the first thing, she comes in here and says the things sacred and things secular is an irreligious classification. And I looked that up, that word up because irreligious is not really something I use in common speech. And it is indifferent or hostile to religion or having no religious beliefs. Hmm. So that, that classification is not something that should happen from a Christian standpoint. The, the division between sacred and secular. Or is she looking at those two things, sacred and secular, from a non-Christian standpoint, without a Christian view. What do you mean? Well, she, she says things sacred and things secular and irreligious classification. So it's a classification of those two things without taking into account religion. It's a classification of those two things, and that classification is indifferent or hostile to religion, is the way I'm reading it. Okay. So the fact that things are divided into sacred and secular is hostile to religion. Oh, okay, I got I see where you're coming from. That which makes sense given given what she says here. Because she goes on to say we as people in society in our culture 
are almost trained. There's a, a little involuntary resistance when we try to merge the two. But we're trained to have God and the soul, which is our life, be supernatural, which is completely apart from the common laws of life. So the supernatural is arbitrary, inexplicable, and opposed to reason. Right. And so she says, we as as humans try to split our mind and split those two things into different parts. And she says, you know, this is this is wrong. We err. It's in reverence that we err in the desire to keep what is holy and sacred separate from what is common and mundane. But, but we do e- err. Even though it's well-intentioned mistake, it's mm-hmm. still a mistake. And so with when we lose... Okay, let me just read what she says. We lose through this misconception of our relations with God the sense of unity in our lives. So when we when we try to split these things up to sacred and secular, it, it's hard. It's hard to make sense of the things that aren't quite sacred. We become aware of an altogether unnatural and irreligious classification into things sacred and things secular. Yeah. We are not in all things at one with God. And she talks about art, science, and politics. All the cares and thoughts of men which are not rebellious are sacred also. Which reminds me, in 2010, we attended excuse me, a conference at our church in Albuquerque called Claris. And they had Wayne Grudem as a speaker. And he spoke on business to the glory of God. And how any form of business, any form of transaction done rightly is sacred is a part of your calling it's a part of your duty it's a part of who you are Hmm. i could be absolutely butchering what he said but that was that was nine years ago yeah i i don't i i do remember not attending the majority of that conference interesting that's that's interesting okay so 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 from that's that's what I got out of that first section. No, that makes sense. So she's saying that the spiritual and the, sorry, the sacred and the secular should be combined. She says, there are beautiful lives in which there is no trace of this separation, whose aims are confirmed to the things we call sacred. Yeah. Did I say that correctly? Well, she's saying there are some people who live that way. So there are people that separate it, and it's wrong. And then there are people who don't separate it, and it's beautiful. Mm-hmm. And and there are people who separate it, but it creates a, a dissidence within them. Right. I think we'll talk about that in a little bit. Oh, we get here in the next section. So we'll talk about philosophy in just a moment. Um, but it's at the bottom of page 130 where people who who have religious faith as their, faith as their first thing and yet are in touch with the science and the thought and the discovery of the day have a half honest compromise with themselves and say, there's certain things which we cannot examine. Those are secular. Mm. We will, those are sacred. These are secular. We're only going to look at the secular. And she says, you know, no, that that's not okay. Everything can be answered because everything is sacred. Right. And she says, or I, I wonder if she would just say everything is life and not to not make a sacred, or secular, and just say, have them combined as one. Well, and even if you do distinguish between secular and sacred, you don't approach those things any differently, and you don't really split them apart. Yeah. They just are 
two sides of the same coin. I think also we need to make sure that there's a differentiation between sacred and holy and reverent. Okay. Because holy is set apart. It has to be. That That's the like definition, the definition of, of the it. word. But there are, there are things that are holy. There are things that are set apart that should be treated reverently and shouldn't be treated as everyday things. Things like the sacraments that should be separate. But that doesn't mean we cannot examine them or look at them or learn from them. And that doesn't mean we should examine them in a different way than we examine other things. And it doesn't mean that the person who mows the lawn is not doing a less important work than the person who's preaching the sermon on Sunday. Right. Because both of those works can be done to the glory of God. Right. And she talks about that a little bit later, but I feel like we're getting ahead of ourselves here. So in the next section, she springboards from this idea that... Our religious thought, as our educational thought, is, is far more than we imagine the outcome of our philosophy. Yeah. She says that everyone has a philosophy. And that philosophy governs us. Which is appropriated from your current thought of your time, modified by your own experiences. Yeah. There is no living soul who does not develop his own philosophy of life. And so whether you are aware of it or not, you have a philosophy by which you live your life. And it's something we talked about in chapter four, I want to say, when we were talking about Parents as inspirers, how to fortify children against doubts. Chapter five, I'm sorry. So I found, as I was looking through these, these, this rabbit trail that Charlotte Mason chose not to go down, about <laughs> uh, the idealistic and the naturalistic school of philosophy, I found that a curriculum from Oregon State University to teachers talking about philosophy of education. Hmm. I'm going to read this bit from it because... They told them you have to find your own philosophy of education. It says, your educational philosophy is your beliefs about why, what, and how you teach, whom you teach, and about the nature of learning. It is a set of principles that guides professional action through the events and issues teachers face daily. Sources for your educational philosophy are your life experiences, your values, the environment in which you live, interactions with others, and awareness of philosophical approaches. Learning about the branches of philosophy, philosophical worldviews, and different educational philosophies and theories will help you to determine and shape your own educational philosophy, combined with these other aspects. So this is a college-level course for teachers saying, hey, you need a philosophy of education, and it will shape how you teach. That's true. It will shape how you view your children, it will shape how you view the classroom, the materials you're learning, everything. Which is why we're starting with this book. Well, no, a- more than that, which is why we are starting with this philosophy. More than just parents and children as a book, we're starting with Charlotte Mason. Right. So so Charlotte Mason is a philosophy in and of itself. And so we're starting with that. But we're starting with, at least I'm starting with, I know you you know much more about the practical side of it than I do. But, but we're starting with the philosophy of it before diving into the practicality of what do you do. Yeah, that's Be- true. Because like we talked about in the last chapter, we need a why. Why are we doing things the way we're doing them? Mm-hmm. Especially since it's so different than mainstream. Absolutely. Education. And so to ourselves, we have to be able to 
give a defense for what we're doing so that we don't decide that it's dumb and stop doing it. Yeah. Or that we don't believe it wholeheartedly if it's wrong. Because yeah. we need a why. Why are we doing something? We need an overriding philosophy, an overarching philosophy that guides our steps and our decisions. So we're starting with the philosophy so that we can then go to the practical how-tos and apply that philosophy to everyday life and education. Yep. So she continues on and says, the present day crux is many noble natures are in revolt, feeling that they cannot honestly accept as truth that which is opposed to human reason. Hey, I have that underlined too. Uh, and so the problem is people are in rebellion against the spiritual. There's There's more to this life and people don't want to admit it. And it's a problem. Idealism is the philosophical approach that has its central tenet that ideas are the only true reality, the only thing worth knowing. And that comes from Plato. Mm -hmm. And the aim of education in idealism is to discover and develop each individual's ability and full moral excellence in order to better serve society. And naturalism is the idea or belief that the only that only natural as opposed to supernatural or spiritual laws and forces operate in this world. So that natural laws are the rules that govern the structure and behavior of the natural universe. They say that the supernatural does not exist, i.e. only nature is real. It's a metaphysical philosophy opposed primarily by supernaturalism. Interesting. So just a brief overview of those two schools of thought. So she goes on and, and like we talked about a little bit earlier, she says, now it's not that the times are out of joint, that Christianity is effete, that there is any inerrant in antagonism between the facts of the natural and the facts of the spiritual life. It is our own philosophy, which needs to be adjusted. I had to look up effete. And I'm glad you did because I didn't. It means no longer capable of effective action. Which, ask any mainstream thinker about Christianity, and that's exactly what they'll tell you. Well, and it, it brought to mind the British monarchy, in my mind. Oh, okay. Because they are no longer capable of effective action. As king and queen, or I guess as queen and prince consort, <laughs> they are, I don't know, they are not capable of effective action. Anything no. that they want to do must go through Parliament. Right. It's not like... It is not a true monarchy. Right. It's a it's a representative monarchy. I don't even know. It's a weird system of government. Much like the American system of government is also weird compared to every other system of government ever. So she goes on to say, We have somehow managed to get life out of focus. We have begun with false initial ideas and have taken the logical inferences from these for essential truth. And this goes back to page 39, which is in chapter 4, and talking about initial ideas, and how the initial idea begets subsequent ideas. Therefore, take care that the children get right primary ideas on the great relations and duties of life. And then on page 53, in chapter, next chapter, chapter six, That's so skipping a chapter, thinking. she goes on to the crucifixion. Yeah. And how, from two different ways, 
the crucifixion makes sense to to where this the steps of the argument for the conscientious Jew are incontrovertible. The error lies in the initial idea. Such a conception of Jehovah has made the conception of Christ inadmissible, impossible. Mm-hmm. Oh, and one more place. In her principles, principle number 16 and 17, she talks about initial ideas as well and how the way of reason, how, how reason can bring you to wrong places. Right. So we need to teach children to not lean too confidently onto their own understanding of the initial idea. Yeah. Whether the initial idea be right or wrong, reason will prove it, or I'm sorry, reason will confirm it by irrefragable proofs. Irrefragable? That's what it says. Page XIV on the in the preface. What on earth is an irrefragable proof? It is a word, irrefragable, not able to be refuted or disproved, indisputable. So why not just say indisputable as opposed to irrefragable? So she can't fragment her hard drive, right? Or she's not going to throw a fragmentation grenade. It's non-fragable. <laughs> this idea you can't throw a sorry. grenade at <laughs> irrefragable. The proof, the proof, not the idea. No, oh, I'm sorry. You can't throw a grenade at the proof. <laughs> you can't explode it. Nope. I mean, I guess that, that works. Makes sense. Too. It does. Well, it gives a very good word picture. It well does. done, John. Because you used the word. Irrefragable. Frag. All right, so we move on from there to all intercourse of thought belongs to the realm of ideas. So looking up real quick, I thought this word was a typo. Logical inferences from any premises, whatever accepted by the mind. Premises deals with ideas. Premises deals with things. Interesting. I don't know where that word is. Right above the word thought. The big bold thought. Oh, yeah, I'm already past that. Okay. Moving on. So then she goes back to her fascination with the brain and the fact that ideas are actually imprinted on the brain. Seriously, I wish that Charlotte Mason would have been able to review the neuroscience of today. I think she would have loved it. She would have been fascinated. She would have been. But the point is, the brain does not originate these ideas. These ideas are spiritual in nature. Mm -hmm. And they are conveyed spiritually... By means of the printed page, the glance of an eye, the touch of a hand, or that holy mystery of inbreathing of the divine spirit, which we cannot, of which we cannot tell whence it comes or whither it goes. And you so, know she's right because she used the word wither. So because we know that ideas are spiritual, and once we recognize that all thoughts are by their nature spiritual and appear to the, appeal to the spiritual... So, which makes every intercourse of thought and feeling mm-hmm. belong to the realm of ideas, then then the great mysteries of our religion cease to be hedged off from our common experiences because everything is spiritual. Right. If my friend is sitting beside me talking to me at the bar, spirit with spirit. That's spiritual intercourse right there. That is an exchange of ideas, which is spiritual intercourse. Which is the same spiritual intercourse that you can have with the spirit of God, Mm -hmm. with the spirit of man. And then she says, the more perfect the sympathy between human souls, the less the need for spoken words. And you can see that in people who have been married forever. Or or friends who have been friends for a really long time. They don't need to say everything to know what each other are thinking. 
or they can convey something with just a look. Yeah. Especially like a raised eyebrow. And then the other person doubles over laughing and you're like, what on earth just happened here? Okay. So I was playing Pictionary with my brother once. And it was the last time we were allowed to be on the same team. (laughs) So he was drawing and he got a card and he drew two lines, which formed. So he drew a line across to right to left and then a line top to bottom. So it was, it was just a a 90 degree. It looked like a seven. Yeah, It looked like a seven, just a 90 degree angle. And I said basketball game. I got it. He was going to draw a diagram of a basketball court and like diagram a play. He had to draw two lines, a basketball game. (laughs) And everybody looked at me like, no, no, this is not a thing. You guys are not allowed to be on the same team anymore because neither he nor I can draw. So, you know, when we got on the same team, it was like, oh, whatever. It doesn't even matter. They they can't draw anyway. But man, we were on a roll that night of just drawing random innocuous things and it'd be basketball court. There's two lines on the board. Dad and I got banned from being on the same team also in Pictionary. For probably about the same thing. Because everyone was on start and we were halfway around the board. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So Multiple games in a row. (laughs) So, I mean, that's that's a real thing. That the longer and better and closer you are to someone, the better you can convey an idea with or without words. Yeah. So. It's a, it's a special thing. It is. And sometimes it means that you can draw two lines and realize that the ch- person is trying to tell you about a basketball game. <laughs> it's always about <laughs> basketball or video games with you. Um, Just agree. Yeah. Because you know it's <laughs> true. Has that ever been a question? <laughs> well, I thought maybe I might rank in there, but. You held a basketball once. You're good. basketball adjacent (laughs) basketball adjacent (laughs) so it's (laughs) horrible yes you're right that is horrible it is terrible (laughs) that is terrible and you wonder why you don't sleep on the couch more often (laughs) You got you got to set the bar real low. <laughs> we don't have a doghouse or you would be out there. Yeah, probably. Although right now it'd probably feel better out there than it is in here. So we turned off all the fans for the sake of having a clean recording. And it is like a sauna in here. Yeah, I'm dripping. We're, we might have to rethink. Summer's coming. Something. This is... This Not is, winter's coming. Summer's coming. <laughs> winter's coming. <laughs> the summer beasts are going to come and get us. Really like the burning man. I mean, if winter is ice, summer is fire. That makes sense. You're flaming zombies now. Whatever. Okay. Oh, so we can translate that that type of relationship to the converse of the soul, the devout soul, and it's God. Which is, it's really a, a, a beautiful picture. Mm-hmm. So, and then she moves on and says, well, if this is true, if spirit to spirit is the way of communication of ideas, then, of course, the father of spirits would 
graciously keep open such intimate access to and converse with the spirits of men. And Mm -hmm. then she has a quote here from The Imitation of Christ. I would that one would grant me, O my Lord, to to find thee only, that thou alone would speak to me and I to thee, as a lover talking to his loved one, as a friend at table with his friend. The Imitation of Christ... Which is what that's from. ...was written by Thomas Akempis back in 14... about 1420. It's a handbook for spiritual life arising from the Devotio Moderna movement. Basically, it's a Christian devotional book, and it's probably the most widely read Christian Christian devotional book next to the Bible. It was very popular immediately, and it was printed 745 times before 1650. So in 230 years, it was printed 745 times. And the number of counted editions today exceeds 2,000. 2,000 That's a lot. times it has been printed. We have an example of Narcissus, who was a Greek mythology, or is in Greek mythology as a hunter. Which is where we get the term narcissistic, someone who loves themselves or loves the image of themselves. So I don't remember reading much Greek mythology growing up. So he was a hunter, and he was a very beautiful young man, and many people fell in love with him. However, he only showed them disdain and contempt. One day, a nymph named Echo spotted him and immediately fell in love with him. And when Narcissus sensed that someone was following him, Echo eventually revealed herself and tried to hug him. However, he pushed her off and told her not to disturb him. Echo, in despair, roamed the woods for the rest of her life and wilted away until all that remained was an echo of a sound. Somebody else, Nemesis, the goddess of retribution and revenge. So Nemesis learned what had happened and decided to punish Narcissus for his behavior. So she led him to a pool and there the man saw his reflection in the water and fell in love with it. Although he didn't realize at the beginning it was just a reflection, When he understood that, he fell in despair that his love could not materialize and committed suicide. So uh, there's there's Nemesis. Interesting. And Narcissus. Interesting. Echo. And a cultural reference that she made that she just kind of threw in there because she read a lot. And she assumed that you know when she references Narcissus exactly what she means. Yeah. So she says, is when Narcissus became enamored with his reflected image, what have we to say in reply? Nothing. He who does not perceive that he loves in his brother, not the material form, but the spiritual being of which this form is one expression, how can he understand that the spirit of God should draw with irresistible drawings the spirit of man? For what is the body but a garment which the spirit shapes to its uses? Easy tolerance commends itself to many minds. Talking about ignoring spiritual reality. How to, it's, how it's yeah. easier. It, how it seems to be easier. To accept the outward seeming, to ignore the spiritual reality, is the easier way. To say, ah, oh, the worship of Christ, the worship of Buddha, it's just where you live, your climate, your conditions. And lots of people think this way. 
And they still do today. This easy tolerance commends itself to many minds of these days. And so then this next section is actually a quote. This entire section is a quote. From the history of Pendennis, his fortunes and misfortunes, his friends and his greatest enemy, which was written in 1950 by William Makepeace Thackeray. And it offers an insightful and satirical picture of human nature and aristocratic society. Hmm. So he, he looks at the way people live and think. And one of the things he talks about is this easy, skeptical life that she's talking about. Yeah, he says, Into what does this easy and skeptical life lead a man? To what we say does this skepticism lead? It leads a man to shameful loneliness and selfishness. The more shameful because it is so good-humored and conscienceless and serene. This is, it reminds me of the extended adolescence we see nowadays where people, young people, are willing to extend, extend their, their time of not growing up and taking on responsibility. And to plunge into easy sensuality. Right. Because if there's no external force, if there's no God, if there's no spiritual, then everything ends up boiling down to me. It's all about me and now. And if there's no afterlife... If there's no heaven or hell, if there's if there's nothing after, if all we have is this life and then we die, why would you do anything else than live to your greatest pleasure? Why would you look out for this whole wretched world that goes past you? Right. There's no reason why you would. You would you become as selfish a creature as you can. And even if you get in a relationship, it's all for your own benefit. Which is why the divorce rate is so high, because people get into relationships because it feels good. And as soon as it stops feeling good, you get out of that relationship because, well, it's all about me and I don't feel good anymore. I would preface that to say this is one reason. Why. Sorry, you're right. That is one of the reasons. That is that is a reason. There are people that I work with, that I play Frisbee with, who are this way, that they have the thought that it's all about me. And it's sad, but it it makes sense. And she goes on to talk about if the fight for truth is taking place and all men of honor are on one side or the other and you alone are just lying on your balcony smoking your pipe out of the noise and the danger, you had better have died or never have been at all than be such a sensual coward. Which reminds me of the church in Revelation. Yeah. Where Jesus says, I would have rather you been hot or cold. Right. But you're lukewarm. Lukewarm, church revelation. Uh, Laodicea, the church in Laodicea. And to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, I know your works that you are neither hot nor cold. I could have wished that you were hot or cold. So then because you were lukewarm, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Vomit, not spit. Uh, New King James Version. Vomit. I love the King James. Yeah, uh, don't don't be in the middle. I used to think that what the angel here is saying or what Jesus is saying is that you would either be on fire for Christ or absolutely against Christianity. You know, be hot on fire or or have a cold stone heart. And I don't 
think that's what the angel is saying because why then would lukewarm get spat out but not the cold people? Because if you're absolutely against Jesus, then you get spat out. Or maybe it's that if you have some conviction, then you can be convinced of something. But if you just don't care, then you're just apathetic. You're just apathetic. So I don't know. I think you could take that any number of ways that that uh, you can take you can take any number of ways. What is what does the angel or what does uh, what does Jesus mean here by saying hot or cold? But what you can absolutely take out of this is that being apathetic is not good. Yeah. And I feel like this whole section is kind of a side tangent of hers. It kind, where she, she's talking about spirit, talking to spirit. And then yeah, and she it, goes, oh, yeah. And some people are lukewarm. Yeah, you're, you're probably right. It, it does feel kind of like a side tangent. Because then right right after this, she starts, she introduces, she doesn't start her talk about it. She introduces the sermon series that she's going to talk about. And so this, everything she's been building up now, she she says it's, his sermon series is a refreshing contrast with this sort of modern Sadduceeism. In his view, faith is not mystic, supernatural, or even an exceptional development. It is the common basis of our dealings with each other. And so within the law, you have... Well, she goes on there and says, credit, trust, confidence. The framework of society rests upon these. I cannot trust you. What worse thing we can say to one another? And our whole commercial and banking systems. And so she she relates faith or he relates faith to commercial and banking systems the law recognized the confidence in the fellow man innocent until proven guilty mm-hmm. commercial banking you have credit against somebody mm-hmm. family and social life well we'll call it moral credit where we are engaging with one another and putting our trust in them so in dealings with men man lives by credit dealings with god man lives by faith so let's use the same word in both cases because man is spiritual all his relationships god or man he lives by faith Mm -hmm. and that that boils it down to something that a child can understand yeah and possibly more than us because it's easier for them to trust others and offer a guide or confiding hand to any guide we have to teach our children to not trust strangers. Yeah. We have to teach them to not take candy from strangers because children inherently trust people that are older than them and big. Which side tangent that we're not going to get into is a breakdown of society in that we cannot trust other adults, other strangers with our children. It is. With our lives, with our family. Side tangent for another time. Yeah. Because faith is a simple trust of persons in person. And the kingdom of God is coming upon us with power. So let's break down this. And this is, again, back to the sacred and secular. Let's break down this foolish barrier of the flesh and perceive that it's spirit to spirit. Therefore, faith is the simple trust of person in person. Mm-hmm. And the second person is capitalized, so... Trust a person in God. Well, she says, how easy then to understand the never-ceasing, ever-inspiring intercourse of the divine spirit with the spirit of man. What I caught out of this section was 
when she says, we're not confounded when we hear of a righteous man who lifts up his face to heaven and says, there is no God. Because we know he maketh his sun to shine upon the evil and upon the good, and that just that measure of moral light and leading which a man lays himself open to receive is freely given to him. He may shut his eyes and say there is no sun, but nevertheless he is warmed and fed and comforted by the light he denies. A person can close their eyes and say the sun is the sun doesn't exist. That doesn't make the sun not exist. A person can close their eyes and say, I don't have parents. That doesn't mean that person doesn't have parents. A person can close their eyes and say, there is no God. That doesn't mean there is no God. Mm-hmm. So that was, I, I thought that was an interesting way of, of putting that because it really, it really trivializes that whole argument. Well, I don't believe there's a God. Well, okay. There's, there's. In in this with this argument, there really is nowhere to go. After that, is I don't believe there's a God. Well, you're wrong. There is. Well, his inspiration and instruction come in the direction and in the degree in which the man is capable of receiving them. Hmm. So there are uninstructed savages who are capable of receiving instruction in the way that they can mm-hmm. and show traits of piety and generosity. Mm-hmm. And there are men who are learned who say there is no god yeah so it, it's it's the degree and the direction that that they that he can receive them yeah and so this faith in which we would bring up our children the strong passionate sense of the dear nearness of our god firm in this conviction the controversies of the day will interest but not exercise us for we are on the other side of all doubt once we know in whom we have believed. Hmm. So again, back to the initial idea. Yeah. Once once we have this initial belief and sense of the dear nearness of God, we're on the other side of doubt as far as controversies are concerned. Yeah, and once we're firm in the who do we trust in. I think that's part of not based in Christianity, but I think that's part of why I spent the years I did before Ian was of school age in looking at ways of homeschooling. Mm -hmm. And so that once I chose the Charlotte Mason philosophy, I said, okay, this is what we're choosing. That initial idea of this is who we're doing, this is what we're doing, we can move on from there. Yeah. Because we need to start with the initial idea where it needs to be, which again goes back to why we're looking at this book first. We've talked about that already. We're talking in circles. Faith comes by hearing and hearing comes by the word of God. Romans 10, verse 17. She doesn't even show that she's quoting anything here. Nope. Just, she just writes it down. Plagiarism. Again. Gosh. Plagiarism. Plagiar- plagiarisming. Plagi- plagiarizing. plagiarizing. Goodness. Plagiarizing the Bible. We advance in this lore of the soul only in proportion as we make it our study. So she's coming around to her topic. What's this? Six pages in? She got there. Started at 29. Seven pages in. (laughs) So we advance this lore as much as we make it our study. And everyone who's involved in the bringing up of children is thankful for every word of help and insight which will open our eyes to the realities which are spiritually discerned. In this view, 
parents will be glad to read and ponder the sermons before us. So I don't know how much we want to get into the actual sermons themselves because it can be awkward to talk about a review of a thing that I've not actually read. A review of a review. A review of a review because there's stuff missing here. I think there's some nuggets that we can pull out. I don't know how much we want to actually sit and discuss. I don't think we'll dive deep into the actual sermons themselves, but but there's there are some good things we can pull out. There are out. some nuggets. And, and the we first, don't need to get into that debate again. Yeah, and so the first one, I think I think this is from the the intro to his sermons, The Naturalness of Faith. She says, It is noticeable that while our Lord is always demanding faith, he offers no definition of the faith he requires, so that there is a presumption that he meant by faith just what men ordinarily mean by it. Well, if you don't define your words, if you don't use your words carefully... Then it means what it always means. It means exactly what it's supposed to mean. And here she's saying, well, they don't say faith is supposed to be anything different than the way we look at it elsewhere. Which she already went into. (laughs) That's true. We look at faith as credit. Yeah. So therefore, when God asks for faith, he's asking for belief and credit. Right. And, And we can understand that because we deal with each other. So we need we, we need to put our faith in God in the same way that we put our faith in men, all except that God's never going to let our faith down. Yeah. It's interesting. It was it's a it's a continuation of the point that she made earlier, and I think this is this might be where she springboarded from that, but but it's it's an interesting point nonetheless. And talking about the continuity of the Apostle Peter's faith from from when he first encounter jesus and jesus said hey come follow me and to the very end where he said well where he asked him simon son of jonas lovest thou more than these and so from that point to the on the beach did simon peter grow in his faith i would argue yes yeah he spent three years with this man he spent his he gave up his life i i don't think there's any way you cannot grow and then, and she talks about this, or he talks about this, someone talks about this in a sec. He denies Christ, he runs away, Jesus dies, Jesus comes back to life, and then confronts Peter again. That's both here and later. Right. Peter definitely grew. Yeah. And if you look at the the scaredy cat that Peter is when people confront him during Jesus's trial... And then you look at Peter, people confronting Peter after the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in Acts. The They're reaction, two different men. The reaction is totally different. Before, when his relationship with, with Jesus is brought up, he denies it unequivocally. I do not know the man. I do not know the man. When at the time, it might not have killed him to just, like, yeah, I, I, I walked with him. You could you could spin it in a way that he was he, yeah he was kind of a crazy kook. Like they ask him three times like you're you're one of those guys right? They yeah. knew he was and he was just denying it outright. You sound like you're from the same place. No, I'm not from there. You've got the accent, dude. If you're Irish, you have an Irish accent. Come on. <laughs> Gosh, if you're from Minnesota, we know you're from Minnesota. <laughs> you're from Galilee, bro. But then at the end, you know. You couldn't separate him from from what he believed. Stands up and preaches in front of thousands. And they say he's drunk. And he's like, nope, nope, not drunk here. Right? It's only nine o'clock in the morning. And then wasn't 
doesn't church history hold that Peter was crucified upside down, upside down because he didn't want to die in the same way that Jesus did. Yeah. Um, but, but Peter was crucified for his belief in Jesus. Yeah. Like he was a changed man. Okay. So moving on though. So um, this is an extra ex, extract from the preface and talks about the naturalness of faith. Not that which comes of itself or by itself, but that which is acceptable, fit and proper to our nature whenever and whensoever it arrives. Mm-hmm. So then there's a 11 sermons all about faith. He, you know, very ingeniously has faith in all the titles. All right. The object of, the worship of, the righteousness of, the food of, national, the eye of, the ear of, the activity of, the gentleness of, the discipline of, and then just to change things up, faith in man. <laughs> Every other sermon had faith at the end until the, until the last one. And she talks about the first three, the object, the worship, and the righteousness of faith. Those are the three that she reviewed. And she goes into most detail about the first one, the Mm -hmm. object of faith, and talks about what Christ looked like Mm -hmm. and and how his compassion was what drove him, his compassion for sickness, his compassion for ignorance, and those without a master— but he also had compassion on the sinner who repents. And so she's, well, not she, Beeching is envisioning what the countenance of Jesus looks like as he's looking at Peter and says, hey, you sinned, you messed up, but do you love me? Mm-hmm. And just the, the gentle compassion that the look drove him almost to tears. And she, he says, would that, would that that face would shine upon us with whatever reproach when we in word or deed deny him, so that we too may remember and weep. How the heart rises to such teaching as this, the simple presentation of Christ as he walked among men. And I think this is where, this is, a, this is one of the things we can learn and try and emulate in Jesus. Jesus didn't grab a belt and beat Peter over the head with the fact that Peter sinned and did wrong. Yeah. And sinned against Jesus directly. Denied him. Jesus had compassion on him and was was sad that Peter had denied him. And dealt with the fact that Peter had denied him. Dealt with it directly, spoke to it directly, and then they were done with it. Yeah. I, it's something I think we as parents can learn from Jesus that when our children do directly either sin or go against what we tell them to do, we do need to confront directly and then we need to move on. Not hold it over their heads. We cannot hold it over their heads. And that's something that I'm really bad at. I'm I'm really bad at not holding it over our kids' heads that they screwed up. Remember uh, that time earlier today? Yeah. It's you've been screwing up all day today. And so therefore, when you screw up, it's not the same as every other time. It's now a big deal. Yeah. And there's a certain truth to that because... Repeated behavior needs to be dealt with also, but there's also the, you did that thing three days ago, and so I'm frustrated with you now because you did it then, even though I said that I forgave you then, I'm still frustrated with you now because you're now doing the same thing again. So I I think there's something we can learn from Christ here, and me specifically, I, I can learn from Christ here. And then she goes on to talk about, because this is her now. Mm-hmm. Um, talking about how teachers can lift children up to behold the face of Christ. Mm-hmm. I, I guess teachers invite us. So that could be any type of teacher to any type of person. 
whether it's the pastor to the congregation yeah. or the the school teacher to the children invite us to behold the face of Christ so not not necessarily expounding upon it but just holding up Christ yeah so then he went on to talk about the worship about the worship of faith and we talked about this a little bit but she says to worship Christ is to bow down with love and wonder and thankfulness before the most perfect goodness that the world has ever seen and to believe that that goodness was the express image of God the Father. And then she goes on to say, or she, he goes on to say, all aims and all ideals that are not the aims and ideals of Christ are distinctly opposed to such worship. And the man who entertains these alien ideals may not call himself a Christian. That's powerful. I think she's saying that. Because she starts a quote and to right. worship and then ends it at the fa- God the Father. You're right. So she adds the all aims and all ideals portion. Yeah, it, it's powerful. We need to examine our motives and examine our attitudes. And she goes on to say, it's well to be reminded that the thorough and willing performance of any duty, however humble or however exalted, is like the offering of incense to Christ, well-pleasing and acceptable. So it's the attitude that we're talking about, not the actual thing that you're doing. Yeah. And so we need to be careful to examine what our attitude is and why we're doing the things that we're doing. And if it's all about me and my own personal gain, then... That is not an aim or ideal of Christ. Right. And it goes back to... Wayne Grudem's. Yeah, thank you. It's, it goes back to Wayne Grudem's... Business for the glory of God. Thank you. It goes back to Wayne Grudem's business for the glory of God that you brought up earlier. That even in things that are so not churchy as signing a business contract, that can be to the glory of God. As long as your heart's in the right place and your attitude is in the right place. It's not that business in, in, is inherently ungodly. Mm-hmm. It's that we're sinners and we can make anything ungodly. So then she moves on to the third sermon, Righteousness of Faith. And this one is extremely important and instructive. I don't have anything else right now. Yeah, I honestly, reading through her review of these made me want to go read the sermons themselves. Because she says interesting things about them, but I don't... Again, uh, Christ's language is free from vagueness and hyperbole, which is exactly what you were just saying. It is straightforward. He blames. He blames for definite faults, mm-hmm. which we can appreciate. Yeah. So the last thing, the last thing that I had that I thought was interesting here is uh, she she finishes by saying, I have not the space to take up in detail all the teaching of the inspiring little volume but I do commend it to parents who as they have need to nourish the spiritual life in themselves, who as they have need to examine themselves as to with how firm a grasp they hold the mysteries of our faith, who as they need to have their ideas as to the supreme relationships so clear that they can be translated into baby baby speech. Besides, we have seen that it is the duty of the educator to put the first thing foremost and all things in sequence. Only one thing is needful, that we have faith in God. And the beginning of this makes me made me think that we as parents, we as educators, we must be fed, and we must be fed good food. We must be fed wholesome food. We must sit, we must be sitting under a good pastor 
who's who's teaching good sound theology and teachings back up real quick we not only must we be fed but we must be fed good spiritual food right because there are all sorts of amazing classic classic works and amazing good books that are not necessarily spiritual you're right so this is again the first thing foremost the most important initial idea is that we have faith in god you may continue. Right. And so so where that led me is we've, Crystal and I have had the pleasure of sitting under some amazing teachers uh, as, as pastors, some amazing pastors who spoke and taught directly from scripture, who taught theologically sound doctrine in both a Baptist and a Presbyterian church. But that is not to say that every person in every situation will be able to find a great teacher and pastor to sit under. Because there are times where the where what works for your family, what works for the the denomination that you're a part of, the pastor there is not the greatest pastor ever, which is not, or the greatest teacher or teacher of doctrine. And certainly what I'm not saying is leave your church to find a new pastor. What I'm saying is we have to be fed good food. So if you're not getting fed good food from your pastor on a Sunday, then given the internet, and the fact that you're listening to a podcast right now, you can find good food out there. You can look up good, wholesome sermons from good pastors, and you can listen to series of sermons, serieses of sermons. Uh, it and so it's. I think it's very important that we as parents be fed from somewhere. Well, and even just going back, like like Charlotte Mason did, and find this guy. Yeah. Start start with his eleven, and and this is, and this is an example of a topical series. Yeah, where it's it's not going through the Bible verse by verse, chapter by chapter. It's you know, topic is faith. Mm-hmm. Hence, faith in every single title. But she either is sitting under or found this guy's sermons and read them and commends them to our reading, because they it's an inspiring little volume. Right. To nourish our spiritual life. Yeah. So that, uh, it's it's the whole, you can't pour into others if your cup is not full. Right. You cannot pour into your spiritual life of your children if your spiritual life is not full. You, you need something. And specifically, especially, you need the best. You need high quality, good teaching. Yeah. So if you feel like you're sitting under a pastor who does not have good high quality teaching please reach out to i mean i'd say me i'm not a i'm certainly not an expert in the field i would send you to listen to some of the sermons from or listen to some of the pastors that i've sat under because i thought they were great um i believe it's sermonaudio.com that has a number of probably hundreds thousands of sermons sure to this end We gladly welcome teaching which is rather nourishing than stimulating, and which should afford real help towards sober walking in pure gospel ways. Thank you for listening. Join the conversation with us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter. So the next 30 minutes are Crystal and I talking about random things that are not very loosely related to Charlotte Mason.
If you're interested in listening, feel free. If you don't want to listen to our random ramblings about audio recording, childhood music, historical audio recording, videos, video recordings, visual media, YouTube, video games, video games. What else did we talk about? SpongeBob. I think that was about it. So if you're not interested in listening to the entirety of that discussion, feel free to to just end your show now. Otherwise, have fun listening to us rambling. I was going to say, I'm glad they have recording technology from them. Whatever. (laughs) Charlotte Mason poetry recorded it. Yeah, I know. I figured that out after (sighs) you started talking about who did it. I was like, oh, they were able to record his voice back then? I don't know. When was first recording happened? This is this is why this is why we're having a Charlotte Mason education for ourselves. We we pretend it's for our children. It's so that we can have learning again while we're adults. First radio broadcast, nineteen oh six. No, so, it was not recorded. So they were close. That's radio, though. First audio recording. What is the oldest audio recording? Eighteen sixty. Phonautograph is the earliest known recorded recording audio historians have found. How do you lose that? Well, let's go back and find it. Thomas Edison reading Mary Little Lamb. Mary Had a Little Lamb in 1927. Wasn't that telephone? So the question is, what are the first... Words spoken by Thomas Edison when he made the first recording of the human voice. So in in his in this 1927 recording made by Thomas Edison at the Golden Jubilee of the phonograph ceremony, he recalls the first words spoke into the phonograph, a recital of Mary Had a Little Lamb. So that was 1927. So there was not recorded, there was not voice recordings until 27. So there were a few years away. Yeah, so therefore, there's no recorded... There is no recording of Reverend Beeching preaching this sermon. There's a written record of it and somebody else reading it that is available. That's insane to think about, that not even a hundred years ago, they did not have recorded anything. Yeah. Which, which I mean, you, you think about classical music and how it's an integral part of... A lot of homeschools, not just Charlotte Mason homeschools. And they had to go somewhere to do that or learn how to perform it themselves. They couldn't just... Throw a CD in. Now you're sounding old school. They couldn't just go to Amazon Prime and play it. Couldn't pull out their eight-track tape. I never used those, but I did use cassettes once upon a time. And actually, that was one of my first albums that I had was an album of Alan Jackson's Chattahoochee. I think was the album. It was a present your from my cousin. Yeah. I never bought cassettes. I also had, I, th- I think I had a DC Talk cassette. <laughs> but I also, I also recorded a lot of radio songs onto cassettes. Oh, right. Where you have to push record and, and what is it? Play and record at the same time. Yeah, you push and- play and record at the same time. Wait for the radio to come on at the right time. Mm-hmm. And then, and so then you would have your your rough tape, and then you would get a two-tape deck. 
<laughs> and so, you know, you wouldn't know exactly when they would start playing the song. So you start it when in you, advance, right in advance. All right. So this song is ending. I'm going to go ahead and hit record. It ends. The DJ comes on and starts talking. The next song cues up. And so you've got that first bit of end of song and DJ. And then the same thing on the back end of that song. And so then you have to, so that's your rough <laughs> recording. So you have to record from that tape onto another tape exactly where you want it. And then you have to string together a bunch of those songs. Yes, I did that when I was a kid. And I made awesome mixtapes. Yeah, I never did that. I totally did. I never did that. I totally did. I would also, uh, I, I had a couple cassettes where I would, I found out I had one one cassette deck that if you hit record on it and then we're talking it, it apparently had a mic. Ooh. And so at the end of the side of the cassette, I would come on and say what was coming up on the next side of the cassette. <laughs> You're such a dork. I was cool because I had a cassette that I talked on. So this whole recording audio thing for me, it apparently is a thing. Goes way back. <laughs> it does. I can remember doing that in the basement of our house in Wisconsin. So I was all of 10 or 12 at the time when I was making those tapes. You're hilarious. <laughs> that was 20 years ago. Wow. How technology has changed. You moved from having to record off of the radio in order to make a mixtape that you want. <laughs> yeah. And, and to do that, a lot of times... You had to request the song during the request hour. Did you ever do that? Oh, yeah. Call in and really? Oh, yeah. Really? Oh, yeah. So many times. I have never called into a radio station. No? No. Oh, it's a cool, it's a cool experience. I've never Especially done it. Especially since on some of them, they'll actually play your conversation back with the, the, with the request. The DJ. Yeah. And so there were several times where I had my own voice on air because <laughs> I requested the song. And there was one I had a I had an obscure Charlie Daniels album, and I found it online. I was like, man, I'd really like to listen to some of these songs. So wait, you found it online, and you were recording onto cassettes. No, okay, so this was later. So when I was recording it into cassettes was when I was ten, eleven, twelve. The album that I found later, it was on a CD, but that was before they put music online, before they figured out how to embed mp3s before probably before they figured out how to encode in the mp3 format um, but anyway there was a charlie daniels album that i wanted to buy but i didn't want to spend 12 dollars on a cd if i if i didn't know if i wanted it and so i found the album the song list and i called into the radio station and i was like all right i want to hear this song by charlie daniels and he's like we don't have that one how about this one we don't have that one this one we don't have that one. Do you have any off of this album? No, we don't have that album. Fine, let me hear some Garth Brooks. <laughs> and I never did buy the album either. That's kind of a letdown. It was it was a terrible letdown. But it was an obscure album for a reason. So radio stations would buy the albums and then have them available? Is that... they? So I don't know exactly how it works, whether... Or at least I don't know how it used to work then. Because I know you used to be able to put out a single. And, and artists still put out a single. So you put out a single and that's what the radio stations pick up and play. And that's why it was at some point bands started releasing singles of like five, five tracks on a 10 track album. 
And so you could hear most of the album on the radio, which was really weird. Normally you would release one or two singles and then have to go buy the album. Okay. So the radio was the, the place the preview. that you put. Yeah, it was the preview and you put the one greatest song off of that album and then you go buy the rest of the album. Because back in the day when you recorded an album, it was it was a story. The, the, the album told a story from front to back. And so each song was at least quasi or semi related to the other somehow, whether it was musically, lyrically, whether it literally told a story or if it was just this is the style that this album is in or, or something like that. Each album went through a progression from start to finish. Well, you've got that ebb and flow that typically happens where you have all your high energy songs at the beginning and then your lower, sadder, right. sweeter ones towards the middle and then up again at the end. Yeah. I remember that happening on CDs. Yeah. And that was that was a real thing. And that's why is because each album was was like a book. It, it wasn't just a single song that you released. It was that collection of 10 to 12 songs. I know that's what Emily has done with her her psalms. She's she's tried to keep that same genre or the same uh, uh, an idea and a theme mm-hmm. throughout each one. So that she, so that it's not just this psalm and that psalm and that psalm, and you're just picking randomly yeah. the ones that you want to do. It's there's a theme. Mm-hmm. I wonder if musicians still do the same today. Probably because I, I know things have changed a lot because of the way we release and consume music. Like you said, Amazon. Pandora. Spotify. Spotify is the other big one. I don't know. Uh, I was listening to I was listening to a Joe Rogan interview where he was talking <laughs> to a comedian and he was a young guy who who's just starting to make it big. And I don't remember his name and I'm not going to look it up because I don't really care. But he was releasing his content on YouTube in five minute videos. Normally when a comedian will release content, he'll release a special and it'll be a one or two hour stand-up routine the whole thing well this guy was trying to figure out a better way to innovate and so he started just releasing single jokes like this is this is one joke and he would release that so it'd be a two to five minute video clip and then the next week he would release another five minute clip and another one and he said he got the idea because he had a musician friend who was doing the same thing with music he was like this guy was releasing single songs Every month. Okay. Just every month, here's a new song. There you go. And so he Was said, it working? Uh, yeah. He was saying that he's getting, he, he is getting more views on his videos than major comedians are on theirs. Because what he was saying is as a, you know, in a two hour special, you look at the YouTube statistics and people will watch 20 to 70% of it and then tune out and go look at something else. But he was getting almost a 95% retention rate. Because they want to hear the punchline. Because they want to hear the punchline. And, and then it's just one. And, and they then can you're done with on. the joke. And you're saying Interesting. Pe- people won't spend two hours listening to a single stand up routine, but they'll sit for four hours and listen to five minute sections of <laughs> a comedy routine. <laughs> and one of the things he was saying is that a lot of times what comedians will do is they'll start with a punch, they'll start with, with some of their best material, and then they'll kind of do some of their not so great material. And then they'll finish with their best material. So you get the best material at the front and the best material at the end. And a lot of people will hear the best material at the front. And then it starts getting kind of meh. And so you tune out. It's like, and no one hears the best material at the end. Mm-hmm. So it's like, I just started releasing my best material in little chunks. And people love it. 
It was interesting. It was really, really fascinating. And here he is talking with Joe Rogan, who's also a comedian who releases two-hour stand-up specials. And he releases them <laughs> every other year. And so it was interesting hearing the two of them go back and forth about... The the benefits and, and downfalls of each yeah. method. Yeah. And Rogan was astounded by it. He's like, that is that is a really cool idea. Because this, this guy is innovating. Because mm-hmm. he couldn't find someone to release an hour-long special for him. And he was like, you know what? Screw it. I'll do it myself. It's interesting how how many things are changing in what ways mm-hmm. and how, how different people are finding different ways to change things. Yeah. And we talk about attention span and that the attention span of today's people is much shorter. And yet people and myself included are able to spend hours browsing Facebook or falling into the YouTube hole where you just click on the next video and watch it. And you might only watch five to ten minute videos, but you watch for two to three hours. I feel like those are two separate things because it is changing. It is. Every five minutes. It is, but you're still sitting down doing the same activity for three hours. So it's a, it's, it's a different type of, of attention span. It's that you're not watching a single thing for three hours or sitting down and reading a single book for three hours, but you're sitting down for three hours watching videos. I think that's kind of a combination of it changing and the addictive quality of screens. I could believe that. Because this this just by its nature, the screen is very addictive. Mm -hmm. I even now have a very hard time doing anything while a TV is on. I didn't grow up with a TV on Mm. in the house. And so if the TV's on, I'm typically paying attention to it, even when I'm not trying to. It was... Sure. When we got married, we would go over to your parents' house a lot, and the TV was on a lot. Mm-hmm. And so I had a hard time focusing on a conversation with the TV going on over here because I was just always looking at it and always even, be, even though always the rest having of us, my intention being drawn to it. And even though the rest of us were absolutely ignoring it because we'd done that for years. Yeah. Yeah, and it would always be on like IGN TV or the the. Not IGN, the HGTV. HGTV. IGN's the Internet Gaming Network. Yeah, not that one. <laughs> not that one. Um, yeah, HGTV. Or it would be a sporting event. You would be watching football or basketball or golf, even. So it, it's something I've noticed in myself when when I became an adult and could and had the and was given the freedom to be out of my parents' house, and mm-hmm. I have to make those choices for myself now. Right. And it was extremely addicting where if a screen was on, I'm watching it. And it happens even now. If I'm watching a show, I'll, I know I'm going to spend the next number of hours doing that because that's what happens. I was talking to your brother about the same thing. We were at a wedding and there was a TV and we were going through the food line and his kids were glued to the TV. Like, do you want this? Do you want this? Hey, kid, ignore the TV. They're not, there's nothing happening. It's news. Talking heads are talking. Concentrate on the food. And, and they, they weren't. He was like, you know what? When I was that age, I did the same thing. And still to this day, yeah. if there's a TV on, I have a hard time ignoring it, which is fascinating because I have no problem with it. When, when I was in college, after we got married, that was one of my ways of, that was one of my methods of studying was to find a movie that had Short bits of intense action followed by long bits of kind of quiet, dry drama. Gladiator was a favorite of mine for that because there's like 
four giant climactic fight scenes. And then everything else is just slow moving talking. And I could, I, I never understood that. Cause I would watch the, I would watch the dramatic part and then ignore everything else until the next dramatic part happened. And then I would take my five minute break and watch the dramatic part. It's interesting. Uh, and it's something I've thought about too, is in this world, there will be an increasing number of screens everywhere. Yeah. And it would carry them in our pockets. Yeah. I mean, there's uh, one, there's, there's phones everywhere. So you have your phone, but two, there's just, there's screens everywhere. There's TVs and billboards rotate. And it's something I've thought about. Like we have a TV that's mounted on the, on our wall and it's typically off, but it's there. Mm -hmm. It gets used the majority of the time after we go to bed, either me playing video games or, or we'll watch a movie or a show together. But outside of those two to four hours at night, it's typically off. But when it gets turned on, our kids are absolutely glued to it. Mm -hmm. And so it's a thought in the back of my head as to should we turn the TV on just so that they can learn to ignore it? And I don't know. Or keep it off so that when it is on, they are focused on it. Yeah, I don't know. And, and because, again, we got the kids' candles for long trips so when they have a Kindle, when they have a screen, they're focused on they're it. They're glued to it. And and so it's not like they play 20 minutes and they're done because this is what they do every day. It's No, it's I have this. This is mine. This is, I can do this. And, and this is the only time I'm going to get to do it for the next 12 months. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so it is a novelty and it is something to look forward to. Yeah. I don't know. We, we are currently erring on the side of not doing the screens and the technology and science is backing that up it and, is and the schools of you know the american academy of pediatrics the cdc the who all of them are coming out with recommendations to avoid screen time especially before the age of two well, i'm i'm absolutely on board with that i'm thinking more as our kids get older and are in grade school and middle school mm-hmm to, to learn responsible and beneficial use of screens. Right. Because there will be screens throughout their lives. And there will even be screens during their life at times when they do need to ignore it. Mm -hmm. And that is a valuable skill to have. Mm -hmm. To realize that there is a screen showing a thing and you can ignore it. Yeah. Tangenting back to where we came from. So it was addiction to screens and the short five minute episode. Yeah, that was the other thing. That is a Charlotte Mason thing. Short lessons, keep your attention span focused, do a little bit, and move on to something else. So YouTube is a Charlotte Mason thing. I'm down. No. <laughs> That's not what I said. Short lessons is a Charlotte Mason thing. You can find lessons on YouTube. So that that was one thing I did think of is is the switching of brain from thing to thing. And that's why you can play video games for so long. It's you're starting a new game. Right. You're starting a new one. And the same thing with TV episodes. You're starting yeah. a new episode. Uh, it makes me think of uh, when Halo came out. Halo is, for, for those of you that don't know, and it's fine if you don't, um, Halo was a video game that was published by Microsoft and either Bungie or 343 Studios. I want to say Bungie. Probably no one cares. Does other it than matter? Me. Oh, it totally matters. Um, but they innovated <laughs> no. the way that... No, it doesn't. That that genre of video games happened. It was a first person shooter. It was set on a. It was an alien space type thing, sci-fi. It was a sci-fi shooter, and what they pioneered was 
what they called five minutes of fun. And each encounter that you would encounter bad guys was expected to take you between four and six minutes. And that was all. And then each encounter was followed by a brief period of downtime. So you did, you did an encounter and then you moved to another area and you did an encounter and you moved to another area. So it was five minutes of an encounter followed by about two minutes of transit. And it's on, off, on, off, boom, 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 boom. And that game was awesome. And it was revolutionary because up until that point, games were pretty well on for an entire level. And then you'd finish the level and you could then be done. Hmm. But with Halo, it was level starts and up, down, up, down, up, down. So you get that dopamine hit every five minutes where you finish the fight and you're like, oh, that was awesome. And then you start another one and you finish it and get that dopamine hit of you succeeded. And by the time you're done with getting that dopamine hit 40 times, you finished a level in an hour and a half. Well, you're primed and ready to go on to the next level. And the downtime between, there was a little short clip and then you were right back in it to those five minutes of fun segments. So they capitalized on that five minute increment as well. And, and with video games, it's that dopamine hit you're looking for. You want to... You want to get people to succeed, feel good about themselves so that they will then do the next thing. And it's one of the reasons video games can be so addicting is because it's you literally get addicted to it. Seeking and, your next high. Right. You're seeking that next high. And, you know, that's a that's a dangerous thing can become a dangerous thing, I'll say. But but that's what that's what Bungie innovated for for Halo was that five minutes of fun, that snippet of gameplay. And to this day. The original Halo game is one of the one of the top ranked video games among uh, Xbox players because it was just great. Hmm. So so yeah, that that Charlotte Mason's idea of do short, intense lessons or things that has been validated across other industries as well, be it YouTube for videos, Halo for video games, education with Charlotte Mason. Like we're now we're seeing, or at least I'm seeing that that's a viable strategy for other things. That makes sense. Yeah. And then you have the flip side of things where you have, you know, Marvel releasing three hour movies. I wonder how frequently their, their action scenes were. I don't know. That would be interesting to look at. Uh, So the other thing to look at with movies that's changed over the years is the length of the length between each camera cut. So if you go back and watch movies from the 60s and 70s and into the 80s, the length of each take was really long because it was expensive to cut takes. You physically had to take the film and cut it and paste it together with glue with glue or tape or something. I don't know. Physically, I don't know how that how that worked, but you physically had to do that. And if you cut a scene out, it was literally on the cutting room floor, it was literally on the ground, and you may or may not be able to use it again because you cut it out. With digital now, you've got your master copy, and you kind of cut it wherever you want, and if you didn't like it, you hit the undo button or you go grab the original. So over the years, we've seen cuts go from an average of, I want to say like 30 to 40 seconds before it, it changes the camera angle or something down to it's an average of like five seconds now throughout a movie. And that's especially evident in children's movies. Yeah. And shows. We, we tried to watch the Lego movie. John and I did. But to, to pre-watch it for the kids. 
And we couldn't finish it because it just it kept jumping from, it jumped so much and so quickly that it was, on top of everything else that we didn't like about it, it was <laughs> it was hard to it was hard to watch. It was. Uh, SpongeBob was a pioneer of that. Up until then, children's cartoons had been relatively long cuts, and SpongeBob came along and shortened the cuts as much as humanly possible. And it keeps kids engaged. Compare that to Mr. Rogers. Long cuts where he sits and and talks for long periods of time. Or Sesame Street. It's the same thing. Long cuts. Now, Sesame Streets have, have graf- graphics that pop up and they talk about random things. But I haven't watched Sesame Street. They would, you know, when they were counting, they would they would flash the number up on the screen. So there would be graphics that they would add to Sesame Street. I wonder if they still do that or if, no if it's changed to be more fast-paced. I don't know, but Sesame Street and Mr. Rogers, they used to both be long cuts, as well as other other shows I can remember watching. Doug. Doug had long cuts. Rugrats, I, I want to say Rugrats had long cuts. Looney Tunes, most Looney Tunes shows I want to say had pretty long cuts. Peanuts had long cuts. Like Long cuts was the thing. Because, again, they had to. They had to. Especially if you're drawing it, you're not going to draw something you're going to cut out. That that just hurts. But yeah. So anyway, that's become a thing. So now that we're almost forty minutes into this recording, gosh, 